Welcome to the Banner of Truth broadcast. This program is brought to you by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. Your host is Pastor Jack Schumann, pastor of the Emmanuel Free Reformed Church of Abbotsford, British Columbia. And now, here is Pastor Jack Schumann. We are continuing our series of sermons today on the book of Ezra. The text for the sermon is taken from the book of Ezra, chapter 5, verse 3, to chapter 6, verse 22. But for the sake of time, I will only read chapter 5, verses 3 to 5, and chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. First then, chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. Hear the word of God. At the same time, Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shether Bosnai and their companions came to them, that is, the Jews who were rebuilding the temple, and they spoke thus to them, Who has commanded you to build this temple and finish this wall? Then, accordingly, we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. And now we turn to chapter 6, verses 13 and 14. Then Tatanai, governor of the region beyond the river, Shether Bosnai and their companions diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. So the elders of the Jews built, and they prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. And they built and finished it according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. This ends the reading of the Holy Word of God. May he bless the reading and preaching of it to our hearts. Dear friends, when God is on our side, we can overcome the greatest obstacles. When Pharaoh chased after the people of Israel, after they left the land of Egypt, God parted the waters of the Red Sea, allowing the people of Israel to escape. And then he caused those same waters to collapse on the Egyptians, destroying Pharaoh and his entire army. When during the days of Hezekiah, the Assyrians came and besieged the city of Jerusalem, God sent an angel to destroy their army. By the next morning, some 185,000 soldiers lay dead, forcing the rest of the army to retreat. When the angel Gabriel told Mary that she would conceive a son, even though she was a virgin, she did so by the power of the Holy Spirit. Why did these things happen? The simple reason is because God was with them. With God, nothing is impossible. And no one knew this more than the Jewish exiles who had returned to the promised land after many years in captivity in Babylon. As we have seen, upon returning, one of the first things they did was they started to rebuild the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem. But no sooner was the foundation laid than their neighbors, the Samaritans, ordered them to put a stop to the work and successfully lobbied the king of Persia to back them up. And so for 16 years, the temple lay unfinished. But then the Lord raised up the prophets Haggai and Zechariah to encourage the people to resume the work. And for a time, they did. But within a short space of time, they faced opposition again. This time, however, the Lord was with them. 
he would not allow the work of the temple to cease again. And he ensured that it would be built in preparation for the coming of his son several hundred years after these events. Now we read about this in the verses that we read together from Ezra 5 and Ezra 6. And it's to these two chapters that we turn our attention with God's help today. My theme is the rebuilding of the temple completed. And we'll consider, first of all, the approval the Lord secured. Secondly, the strength the Lord gave. And thirdly, the joy the Lord bestowed. Much work had been done on the temple. The foundations were laid. The walls were going up. Everything seemed to be going so smoothly. But as often happens in the work of the Lord, before long, the Jews faced opposition again. And we read in verse 3, that at the same time, in other words, when the temple was being rebuilt, Tatanai, the governor of the region beyond the river, and Shether Bosnai and their companions came to them. Now, as indicated, Tatanai was the Persian governor of the region beyond the river. And this refers to the lands to the west of the Jordan River. So it would include Syria and Lebanon, Samaria and Judea. At this point in time, the Persian Empire was divided up into various districts known as satrapies. And each satrapy had several governors who were answerable to a satrap, who in turn was answerable to the king. Now, Tatanai was one such governor. The other man mentioned here, this man called Shether Bosnai, was probably his assistant. Well, one day, Tatanai, hearing that the Jews were rebuilding the temple and that it was shaping up to be a very large building, decided to take a trip to Jerusalem to see for himself. And immediately after arriving at the city, he asked the men who were working there who had commanded them to work on this building. You see, Tatanai was suspicious, and he had good reason to be. And that's because there was some political instability in the Persian Empire at this time. There were attempted uprisings in various corners of the empire, and at least one attempted coup. Could the temple that the Jews were building serve as some kind of defensive fortification as a prelude to a future rebellion? Tatanai did not know, although it was certainly possible. And so he asked who was in charge. And the Jews told him. We read in verse 4, Then accordingly we told them the names of the men who were constructing this building. But they did more than that. They also gave Tatanai all the necessary background information. Now we have a record of what they said to him in the letter that Tatanai sent to Darius, who was the king of Persia at that time. And we have a copy of that letter in verses 11 to 16 of chapter 6. And they told him that they were rebuilding a temple that a great king of Israel had built before them. They were referring, of course, to King Solomon, but which was later destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, as punishment for their sins. They also told him that his predecessor, Cyrus, king of Babylon, in the first year of his reign, issued a decree to build this temple. He even gave back the gold and silver articles which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple and had brought into the temple of his God in Babylon. 
he gave them to Sheshbazar, whom he had made governor, and commanded him to return them to the temple once it had been rebuilt. So all of this was conveyed to Tatanai. How did he respond to this? Well, we might think that having received this information, Tatanai would have ordered an immediate stop to the work. After all, he was responsible for security in this region. If something went wrong, and the temple was in fact used to support an uprising, he would be held responsible. But significantly, he did not do this. Instead, he allowed the work to continue until such time as he could report to and receive instructions from King Darius. Now, why was that? Why did Tatanai allow the men to continue rebuilding the temple? Well, it most certainly was not because Tatanai was such a good guy, although he seems to have acted more fairly than his predecessors, that's for sure. So why then? Why did he allow them to continue? Well, the answer is found in verse 5. It says there, But the eye of their God was upon the elders of the Jews, so that they could not make them cease till a report could go to Darius. So the reason why the Jews were allowed to continue working on the temple was because the eye of their God was upon them. That was simply another way of saying that God was in control. He was seeing to it that everything would work out in their favor. And it did. For not long after he received Tatanai's letter, Darius issued a command to search for the original decree of King Cyrus. And they found it at a summer palace about 300 miles from Babylon. And upon reading the decree and finding that what the Jews had said was true, Darius sent a letter to Tatanai confirming the information and ordering him to allow the work to continue. Now we have a record of that letter in chapter 6, verses 3 to 13. In this letter, Darius instructed Tatanai, first of all, to allow the work of the temple to continue unhindered. Secondly, to make its height 60 cubits and its width 60 cubits, with three rows of heavy stones and one row of new timber. Thirdly, to pay the expenses out of the king's treasury. Fourthly, to restore the gold and silver articles which Nebuchadnezzar had taken to Babylon. Fifth, to supply the Jews with whatever they might need for the sacrifices. And sixth and finally, to put to death anyone who altered this edict. Well, needless to say, when Tatanai received this letter from King Darius, he did exactly as the king had commanded. And we read in verse 13, Then Tatanai, governor of the region beyond the river, Shether, Bosnai, and their companions diligently did according to what King Darius had sent. Now we can learn at least three lessons from this. First of all, we learn here that the experience of the believer in Christ is not all smooth sailing. In fact, it's often the opposite. It is difficult. The believer will often encounter opposition, trials, and hardships in this world. Just look at these Jews in our text. They were rebuilding the temple. They were carrying out the will of the Lord. But what opposition they encountered. What trials, what hardships. Now to be sure, in this case, everything worked out well in the end. But until they got an answer back from King Darius, everything was up in the air. It must have been a very anxious time for them. Now why is this? Why could God not have made it easier for them? Why could he not have prevented them 
from experiencing any opposition or trials or setbacks at all. Why could he have not just simply have given them smooth sailing? And the answer is simply this, because God uses opposition. He uses trials. He uses setbacks to test our faith and to make it grow stronger. And since that is so, dear friends, let us never despise opposition. Let us never despise trials and hardships. Let us never resent these things. Rather, let us regard them as from the Lord and as opportunities to grow in grace and faith in our God. Secondly, we learn here that Satan never gives up in his efforts to frustrate the ongoing work of God in the world. Now, initially, he did succeed. He succeeded in stopping the Jews from working on the temple some 16 years earlier. When, as a result of the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, they resumed work on the temple, he tried again. And the devil never gives up, you see. He will always launch one attack after another. Peter rightly says that he is like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, constantly prowling around us, looking for an opportunity to attack us and to bring us down. Oh, let us therefore not be ignorant of his devices, dear friends. Rather, let us always remain steadfast and alert, looking to the Lord, who will give us the final victory. Thirdly, we learn here that God is in control of all things, including governments. These verses are a superb illustration of the truth expressed in Proverbs 21, verse 1. There we read these words. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like the rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. Now we need to pay heed to this. Governments today think that they are all powerful. But they can do nothing apart from God's permission. They can only do as he permits and directs them. Now that cuts both ways. Sometimes God causes governments to act foolishly and to suffer the consequences of their actions. At other times, such as in this case, he causes them to act wisely and to reap the rewards and even to turn back from a disastrous course of action. Either way, God is behind every decision of government, just as he was behind Darius's decree to allow the Jews to reconstruct the temple. And our text chapter affirms as much. In chapter 6, verse 22, we read that the Lord turned the heart of the king of Assyria toward them to strengthen their hands in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. The king of Assyria is a reference to the king of Persia. He's called the king of Assyria because the old Assyrian empire which was also a great enemy of Israel, was absorbed into the Persian Empire. The point is, the Lord turned the king's heart to advance the interests of his people. And that gives us hope. Because if God could turn the heart of a great king like Darius, then he can do so today as well. And so the Lord secured the necessary approval. But he also gave his people the necessary strength. And that brings us to our second point. Having secured the support and approval of King Darius, the work on the temple continued. And there was a lot still left to do. The walls had to be completed. The roof had to be put on. 
The temple courts had to be paved with stones. It was a monumental task. But again, the Lord was with his people. For we read in chapter 6, verse 22, that the Lord strengthened their hands. Now that implies something, doesn't it? It implies that the Jews, as courageous and zealous as they were, were still weak and in need of strength. Not so much physically, but spiritually. And no wonder, for they had experienced so many setbacks and discouragements. The attacks of their enemies were so strong. And I'm sure that many of the Jews were discouraged. And some probably felt like giving up altogether. In fact, perhaps some of them were even thinking about going back to Babylon. Just as their forefathers thought when they left the land of Egypt. But the Lord knew this. And therefore he strengthened their hands. Now, how did he do this? Well, the answer comes in verse 14. We read that the elders of the Jews built and they prospered, listen, through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. God strengthened his people through the prophesying, or we could say through the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. Now, it's not difficult to understand how he did this. As we saw the last time, The messages of both of these men were filled with hope. Haggai assured the people of the Lord's help and blessing. In Haggai 1 verse 13, we read these words. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So Haggai assured the people that God would be with them. He would help them. He would strengthen them. What is more, he predicted that the glory of that temple would be greater than the former, would be greater than the temple of Solomon, because the day would come when the Lord would shake heaven and earth, the sea and the dry land, and men would come to the desire of all nations, and he would fill this temple with glory. In fact, he said that the glory of this latter temple shall be greater than the former. And in this place, the Lord would give peace. What a comfort, what an encouragement that must have been for the Jews at this time. Zechariah also had a vision of a lampstand and the olive trees. In this vision, God declared to his people that he would rebuild the temple, not by might, not by power, but by his spirit. And then he went on to address the obstacles that stood in their way. And he assured the Jews at that time that the great mountain of obstacles would become a plain And that Zerubbabel would bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. The hands of Zerubbabel, he said, have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands also shall finish it. And therefore, God said, they should not despise the day of small things. Now again, how comforting the preaching of the word of God from the mouth of Haggai and Zechariah must have been for these downcast Jews. God was with them. He would provide for them. He himself would ensure that the temple would be completed. And it was. For we read in the second part of verse 14, And they built and finished it 
according to the commandment of the God of Israel and according to the command of Cyrus, Darius, and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And dear friends, the Lord still works the same way today. He uses his word, especially the preaching of his word, to energize, to activate, to encourage, to comfort his people. That's why it's so important for us to read his word daily. And not just to read it, but to study it, to meditate on it, to pray over it, to apply it to ourselves, and to do it. This is also why we need to attend a faithful Bible-believing church every Lord's Day and attend a Bible study if possible. The word, you see, is food for our souls. Unless we feed on the word, we will starve spiritually. And when we starve, we will have, we will have no strength to keep on running the race of faith. In fact, one of the main reasons why people do not grow spiritually is not in the first place because the preacher doesn't know how to preach, although sadly that can be in some cases. But rather it's because they themselves are not immersing themselves in the word like they should. So let me urge you once again to immerse yourself in the word of God. Read it, dear friends. Study it at home, with your spouse, with your children, and your families. Attend the worship services of God faithfully. Attend the congregational Bible study. The more we read, the more we study, the more we meditate on the Word of God, the stronger and more encouraged we will become. And so the Lord gave strength to his people to complete the temple. But he gave them one more thing. He gave them joy. And that brings us to our third and final point. Strengthened as they were by the Lord, the Jews worked hard in the temple. Finally, some four and a half years later, they completed it. We read in verse 15, Now the temple was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, which was in the sixth year of the reign of King Darius. Now in our calendar, that would be March 12, 515 B.C. That's 20 years after the restoration work was first started and almost exactly 70 years after the Temple of Solomon was destroyed in 586. Now, upon completing the temple, the people celebrated with great joy. In fact, the word joy is used three times in chapter 6, verses 16 to 22. In verse 16, we read that the children of Israel, the priests and the Levites, and the rest of the descendants of the captivity celebrated the dedication of this house of God with joy. Again in verse 22, we read, And they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy. Joy is emphasized again and again and again. And this joy that they experienced was not just a mere emotion. This was a spiritual joy in God wrought by the Holy Spirit. And that's clear from verse 22. There we read that it was the Lord who made his people joyful. This was a joy that was rooted in profound gratitude to the Lord. It was a grace that the Lord had bestowed upon his people. It was a joy that expressed how thankful they were for all that the Lord had done to bring about this great event. And you notice how they expressed this joy. First of all, verse 17, they sacrificed. Secondly, verse 18, they reinstituted the priestly service. And thirdly, verses 19 to 22, they celebrated the Passover feast and the feast of unleavened bread. In summary, they worshipped God. They expressed their joy and thankfulness by gathering together to worship God according to his word. My friends, do you do the same? 
Why do you go to church every Lord's Day? I hope it's not to hear a man. I certainly hope it's not to put on a show for others. I hope it's not to get pumped up so that you can begin a new week in the daily grind of life. No, we come to church to worship God in joy and in thankfulness for all that he has done for us in Christ. Nothing more and nothing less. Now, to be sure, the form of our worship is different today. We no longer bring animal sacrifices because Christ is the ultimate sacrifice. Rather, we bring sacrifices of praise. We no longer need priests, for those who believe in Christ are anointed with Christ as prophets, priests, and kings. We no longer celebrate the Passover feast. Since the death of Christ, no more blood needs to be shed. The Passover feast has now morphed into the Lord's Supper celebration. But the principle remains the same. We express our joy and thankfulness in collective, corporate, biblical worship to God. My friend, is that true for you? Is that how you express your thankfulness to God? You know, there are many ways to express our thankfulness to God. The Heidelberg Catechism says we do so by keeping the law of God and by prayer, the latter of which is said to be the chief part of thankfulness. But we also do so by coming together to worship God, hearing his word, offering our sacrifices of praise and partaking of the holy sacraments for the strengthening of our faith. Well, since that is so, can there be any reason to stay home when there's a worship service going on? My friends, apart from sickness, old age, or works of mercy and necessity, I can't think of a single one. If we truly love the Lord, and if we are truly thankful for all that he has done for us in Christ, we will make every effort to be in attendance when the congregation of the Lord gathers together for worship. And so the Lord gave his people great joy. Let me ask you as I close, do you know something of this joy? There's a lot of superficial joy in the church today. But is there also a true spirit-wrought joy in God through Christ for all that he has done for us in him? Does that kind of joy characterize our lives? And if not, why not? Do we not have so much to be thankful for, especially for the gift of Jesus Christ and all that he has done and continues to do and will do yet for his people? One day the joy that the people experienced in our text will be experienced in perfection. And that will take place not in a temple or even in a church building made of wood and stone, but in heaven, which is the dwelling place of God. Then all who believe will assemble before his throne and we will see the Lamb that was slain, and we shall rejoice in him. In fact, we will experience a joy then that we never thought possible. For in heaven there is nothing that will detract from our joy. There is no more sickness, no more disease, no more sorrow, nor death, nor crying. And there is no more sin. There is only joy, perfect joy. A joy that will endure to all eternity. Praise be to his name. Amen. We always appreciate hearing from our listeners. If you are blessed by or have a comment on the message you've heard today, we'd very much appreciate hearing from you. Our mailing address is Banner of Truth, 3386 Mount Lehman Road. Lehman is spelled L-E-H-M-A-N, 
and that's in Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. If you would like to listen to the message you've just heard again, or if you would like more information about our program, including how to contact us and how to listen to other messages on this program, please visit our website at banneroftruthradio.com. It's all one word, banneroftruthradio.com. Support for this program is provided by the Free Reformed Churches of North America. For more information about our churches, including where you can find a church nearest you, please visit our denominational website at www.frcna.org. Your financial support for this program is welcome and deeply appreciated. If the Lord has placed in your heart a desire to help us to offset the costs of broadcasting this program on this station, you can send us a check in any amount. Again, our mailing address is 3386 Mount Lehman Road, Abbotsford, British Columbia, V4X2M9. Thank you for listening, and now until next week, may the Lord be with you all.